A Kalita cargo flight is leaving Brussels when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to overrun the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey! Hello! We're back. We're finally getting caught up, guys. Yes, we are. We're recording two <laughs> episodes today. <laughs> so the one you hear this time and the one you hear next time, we're recording on the same day. I would like to preface these two episodes that we're recording that they are going to be short, and that is not our fault yes. entirely. This one will be shorter than the next one, and that is literally just because of the way it is. That's... It got scheduled, and yep. sorry... They made things nice on us. We're going through a spontaneous, unintentional kitchen and floor remodeling. Yay! Because we had a pipe burst. So our lives are a little chaotic right now. Yep. So I, I am blessed with this <laughs> piece. <laughs> is, that, is that what you call it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's a thing. Also, I have put new merch on the merch store. There's new merch. There have been several requests recently, and they have been fulfilled. They have yes, been. they have. So there's a It Gets Worse bumper sticker. All right. And t-shirt. And there's baby and toddler stuff. Nice. So check it out. Take a look. There okay. was something else that was requested too, right? I have no idea. Not that I know of. Oh, there's okay. more stuff that people wanted on t-shirts. You're going to have to remind me, guys. I don't remember. I get, like, very short amount of time to do stuff like that. Believe me, I get it. <laughs> We're lucky we got I got that much. <laughs> yeah. Okay? It takes a lot. I have to make it, and then I have to add it onto the store, and I yes. have to adjust all the prices, and then I have to post it on the store, and then I have to use a buy button, and then I have to put it on the website. It's a whole deal. Okay? So, be patient. <laughs> It'll sometimes take me a while, and sometimes I forget. So, if I forgot... But and there's new merch. You requested something, let me know. But there's yeah. new merch. There's new merch. That's the good news. I'm sorry in advance. Some of it's a little expensive. It's based on the printer, not on us. And so. that's just kind of the way of things right now. I'm sure you all know that quite well. So, we don't have any new patrons as far as I'm aware. No, I did see an email earlier, but I think it's just somebody's... It's, it's someone Because it's who, the beginning of the month. Yeah, so, so we're good. All right. Okay, and then I don't. I don't know. Is there any other... Housekeeping stuff. Newsletter. Sorry, the newsletter's going to come out late. Ooh, we I need... Re I realize this comes out next week. Yes. But I'm definitely not done with it, and I kind of forgot about it, and it's April. So... That's right. We sorry. need to do listener questions. You're right. At the end At of the end this of this episode, episode, we'll do listener questions. Since this one's going to be pretty short. And we have, like, a couple, so... There is something I want to mention. I am behind on my listening of AvTalk, but some news that might excite you guys. The NTSB and I think the FAA are starting the rulemaking process to update the regulation for length of CVR recordings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are starting it, meaning it will probably be implemented in a year, maybe more from now. Yeah. But that's going up to 25 hours. That's... Just, it should have been done a long time ago. I know, but, you know, storage capacity and stuff has advanced. What with the digital age now, this is a possibility. And it is an important change, and it's something that needs to happen, because that's all usable data. Like, that's, that's important to have all that usable data. It can tell you a lot about the status of an aircraft, especially when we track so many parameters like we do today. Well, and part of why it came up is we've had quite a few incidents recently where they wanted to look at the CVR. But the incident happened mid or beginning of flight, and they continued right. the rest of the flight. Right. And the other thing that happens, they get on the ground, and they sit for a long period of time. It keeps recording. It starts recording over, over itself, the yeah. other voice recordings from previously. So it's important to have that data so that you can, yeah, review it. Review what was truly said at the time that was actually important. Yes. <laughs> so. All right. With that said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Kalita Air Flight 207. Thank you to Byron. Thanks, that Byron. might be Brian, knowing Miranda's typing. Uh, it might have been. I'm sorry. I don't know. It could be either one. It really could be. If it's Brian or Byron, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Anyways, thanks for recommending this. Okay. So, another Kalita, huh? Mm-hmm. Another Kalita. But this one's actually Kalita. Yeah. 
Well, the other one was too. It was just wasn't yes. Kalita yet, or it was. It was Kalita. It didn't go back to Kalita yet. Right. It was that weird in between period of time that we had to clarify and why it was. We were also confused. But this is actually Kalita Air. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, American International Airways is also Kalita. Right. Was, was. now. Now it's just Kalita, and this. But is, we covered that a few yes. weeks ago. AIA or eight oh eight. So yes. So. Listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Right. This accident occurred on May 25th of 2008, so relatively recent. I remember when this happened. Well, good for you. Yep. It actually matters to you. It does. This was a Boeing 747-200 with the tail number November 704, Charlie Kilo. This was a flight from Brussels Hmm. to Bahrain, and that's why this matters to me. (laughs) Bahrain is a small Island country, right? It's a very tiny country. I know in the it's a small East. country. Oh, it's in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Sorry, Bahrain. I don't. I don't know where you are. <laughs> very small. I mean, it's not usually covered in our history classes. So mm-hmm. Nick knows because he looks at maps. Yes, I do. Weirdo. Yes, I am. <laughs> I don't have names for the crew. The captain was fifty-nine years old at the time. He had fifteen thousand hours total. They only gave rough numbers. They did not give exact. Of which 3,000 were on the 7-4. So that's quite a bit. Cool, cool. The first officer was 48 years old at the time. He had 7,000 hours total, of which 200 were on the 747. Okay. New Not to the 7-4. very many. No, new to the 7-4. This, and remind me, Kluta is a cargo carrier? Yes. yes. Okay. Yep, they are cargo. In fact, the, Still first, are. the first time that we landed at Brussels, I think there was a Kluta there. Oh, yeah. They're almost always there. They're in Liege. Those are cargo hubs. Oh. And they, yeah, operate a lot of flights in and out of that part of the world. I believe it was a Kalita 747, actually. Yes, probably. Not a 200, though, because they retired those. It was a finally. 100? No, it was probably a 400. Okay. They have it converted. Was small. They have converted 400s. Okay. But that being said, the 200 they had for a very long time. So. Spoiler, it was not this plane that we saw. Nope. <laughs> Based on our conversations the past couple of days, I can guess that this plane didn't see the light of day again. Yes. Continue. The flight engineer was 53 years old. He had 7,000 hours as well, of which 1,950 were on the 747. Why that one was a little bit more specific than the other ones? Not a clue. But anyways, that's a thing. On board for the flight were to be two additional people, which were listed as an additional crew member and a passenger. What I can only assume is maybe a relief crew, which they just didn't list. And then a deadheader, deadheader, yeah, just traveling back. So some perspective, this crew had come from somewhere else entirely, stayed in Brussels for a period of time, and we're now taking this airplane. This airplane had just arrived with a different crew in from Bahrain. It's going back to Bahrain. It's going back to Bahrain. Okay. And it's just doing a pretty relatively quick turn in Brussels to offload, load, and go. Yeah, I'm like, they're reloading and they're going. Yep. So a crew swap was done on the aircraft that morning to the accident crew. So info was exchanged between these crews while on their turn. The captain performed the pre-flight checks on the aircraft. The pre-flight briefing was completed between the crew members regarding the takeoff procedures, including an expected takeoff on runway 20, which was the active runway at the time for takeoffs. After the pre-flight preparation and paperwork was completed, the crew requested an early departure, which was granted. Soon the flight pushed back and started the engines. They then began taxiing. They taxied to the Bravo 1 intersection, where they waited for a few minutes while another aircraft landed on runway 25. Once it landed, they lined up for takeoff. Now, some perspective on this airport. There are three runways, two that are kind of parallel, not exactly, and then one that crosses the other two at a diagonal. At, at Brussels? At Brussels, Okay. yep. And two of those runways' ends are in exactly the same place. Ah. 2-0 and 2-5. So, the reason they had to wait at intersection Bravo 1 is because they had to wait for an airplane to land on the end of one of those two runways so they could go to the other one Got it. for takeoff. 1.29 p.m. local time, the flight was cleared for takeoff. The captain was to be the pilot flying, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this leg. The captain pushed the throttles forward and checked that the engines were stable. The flight engineer then set the takeoff thrust. That's just procedure, apparently. And that's fine. I've seen this done before. As the aircraft accelerated, the standard callouts were made, including airspeed, 80 knots, V1, the normal. Wrote that. 
Rotate. Just five seconds after crossing V1, however, a loud bang was heard in the cockpit. Very loud. Two seconds later, the throttles were brought to idle and braking was initiated. The thrust reversers were deployed. Just moments later, the first officer contacted the tower to let them know that they were going to overrun the runway. Oh, another one, huh? <laughs> the captain turned the aircraft slightly to the right to avoid hitting the approach lights at the end of the runway. The aircraft left the end of the runway at 72 knots, which is ironically exactly the same speed as our last episode. The aircraft then reached an embankment, dropping a height of about 4 meters which is quite a distance, actually, at which point the aircraft broke into three large sections and came to rest on the top of a railroad embankment. The crew managed to safely exit the airplane through the service door on the right side, since the L1 door was deformed from the crash. Only minor injuries occurred to the crew and nothing more. Nobody else was injured. But it this the pictures of this airplane are quite dramatic, actually, for being a relatively... Hmm, I'm not going to say calm overrun, because it wasn't, but the four-meter embankment that they fell into, and then the large lump on the other side of it, didn't help. You have pictures. It split, Ow? It split in a not-small way. <laughs> How? Yeah. I have never seen a plane be split like that yeah, before. Yeah, it's pretty heavy impact, especially such a large It just airplane. literally, like, where the top deck, like, meets the hump, you know, mm -hmm. meets the rest of the airplane, it just separated. Yep, it just split right in the middle. That's so weird. And then the tail separated from the rear section. Yeah, this but that's a, normal. This is a very large picture of it. Yeah. And the front was very mangled due to the giant ditch that it was actually sitting in on the front end. So it had gone smashed and then came to rest. Okay. Well, that's fun. Yeah, that was pretty dramatic. Got anything else? That's it. Okay. So tell me, um, what was the Big Bang? Right. That. It, it's not the Big Bang Theory, in case you were wondering. It is not. I wouldn't think so, but you know. This investigation was performed by the Air Accident Investigation Unit of Belgium, whose office we have been within 100 feet of without knowing it. Yep. Their office is right next to the Brussels Nord train station. Yep. Yes. So... Yep, that happened. This investigation was also done with the assistance of the NTSB and the Smithsonian. I can understand the NTSB, but why the Smithsonian? We'll get into it later. Okay, great. Both black boxes were retrieved from the aircraft the day after the accident and sent to NTSB headquarters in D.C. on the 27th. Okay. Kalita is a U.S. operator. It is a U.S. operator. And this was a U.S. manufactured plane. Yep. Yes. And it was probably a U.S. crew. Almost all of Kalita's crews are U.S. because they have to be usually hired in the U.S. That make a sense. Analysis of the FDR showed there to be a loss of power in the number three engine, which is the inboard right side engine, on takeoff consistent with a compressor stall. A compressor stall occurs when the air flowing into the engine is disrupted, so compressed air can no longer be delivered to the combustion chamber. This creates a high pressure condition behind the stalled area, so airflow reverses and a puff of flames comes out the front of the engine as it stalls and stops delivering thrust. Yes. Which on takeoff is less than ideal. Uh, I would say so, yeah. There are several symptoms of a compression stall, including one or more loud bangs, instant loss of thrust resulting in a yaw movement, engine parameters fluctuating, and visible flames. Flight crews who have experienced an engine stall at takeoff report that the bang is louder than any other noise they had previously heard in the cockpit. It is often compared to a shotgun being fired a few meters away. Yep. Yeah, I've, I could see that. I've heard of this oh, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually a pretty loud occurrence. A loud bang was indeed heard on the CVR. What do you know? There is a picture of the sound spectrum and there's just a solid line. Spike. That would be a bang. Mm-hmm. That, that is consistent. Yes. Yep. This phenomenon has several potential causes. Disruption of fuel or failure of stall protection devices. Investigators analyzed and that was not the case. Strong winds with four-engine aircraft can disrupt airflow to the inboard engines, engines two and three. Okay, there's potential here. Mm -hmm, this was an inboard mm -hmm. engine, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but winds were calm that day. Yep. Number three, internal engine deterioration, such as that of a compressor blade rupturing. Well, none of the blades were ruptured, so that leaves option four. Any guesses? Is it a bird strike? Inge How'd you guess? Ingestion of foreign objects such as ice or birds. I was gonna, I, I literally was gonna say, when you said it was a compressor stall, I'm like, did a bird go in the engine? Does the Smithsonian bird. make sense now? Yeah. <laughs> 
Upon investigation, organic debris was found using black light on the sound-absorbing inner rear liner segments, each stage of the low-pressure compression stages, on fan blades 8, 9, 10, 19, and 20, and on the bleed valve linkage support. I don't know what any of those parts are. Don't ask me. It's okay. They're all parts inside the engine. The organic debris appeared to be that of a bird. Let's talk a little bit about bird control at Brussels Airport. This is all quoted from the report. I'm just reading it. Brussels Airport has a bird control unit of six people, including a team leader, member of the airport inspection. The actions are as follows. Bird strike reporting, bird strike reports analysis, and on a daily basis, actions leading to reduce the risk, such as dispersal of distress signals, dispersal of pyrotechnic bird-scaring cartridge. We do this in Denver, by the way. Dispersal by lethal methods. Not usually the preferred. And grass length management. So they're also in charge of mowing the lawn. (laughs) Basically. Or they contract with somebody who does. Dispersal by lethal methods is not allowed for protected bird species, such as the Eurasian kestrel, falcons, owls, buzzard, and is further submitted to the legal requirements for game hunting. The activity report of May 25th shows some bird activity in the vicinity of runway 20, crows and pigeons specifically. On average, there are 100 bird strikes recorded per year at Brussels Airport, reported by either crews or through inspection of the runway. Okay, that was the end of that quote. I would imagine that the lethal methods are used primarily on pigeons, (laughs) which there are a lot of... Rats with wings. ...in Belgium. This organic debris was delivered to the Smithsonian Institute Museum of Natural History, much like after Flight 1549. Yeah, to figure out what kind of bird they hit. Specifically the bird division. The results of the remains, as well as the DNA analysis, helped prove that a bird was ingested. Specifically a European kestro, or falco tenunculus. Here's a little bit about that bird, which I have a picture to show, Miranda. Isn't that a protect- that's, that's one of the protected ones, right? Uh-huh. It is. Well, that's tenunculus. It's a pretty bird. Mm-hmm. It was a dead bird. <laughs> Not pretty anymore. Yes. <laughs> the European kestrel, or falco tenunculus, is a bird of prey species belonging to the falcon family. The common kestrel is small compared with other birds of prey, but larger than most songbirds. Kestrels have long wings as well as a distinctive long tail like the other falco species. Common kestrels measure 34 to 38 centimeters from head to tail with a wingspan of 70 to 80 centimeters. The average adult male weighs around 155 grams with the adult female weighing around 184 grams. So females are larger. The common kestrel is a bird species protected by the law of 9 September 1981. It is forbidden to use lethal methods for the dispersal of such bird. During a visit of the bird control unit at Brussels Airport, several common kestrel were observed, one of which was hovering above runway 25 right. The BCU, bird control unit, used the distress signal and pyrotechnic charge to scare the bird away, with some limited success. The bird soon came back as the BCU left the area. Aw, man. (laughs) So they're stubborn. Yep. Okay, so they struck a bird. Yes. Fine. Okay, engines are designed and certified to continue operating despite a bird strike. To an extent. To an extent. This particular engine was tested at takeoff thrust to withstand a 3.65 kilogram bird without catching fire or releasing hazardous fragments through the engine casing, as well as to withstand the simultaneous ingestion of several birds without losing more than 25% thrust. Furthermore, a four-engine aircraft must be certified to take off with the total failure of one engine. So the bird strike itself does not explain the accident. No. Right. This is the part that's... Mm, however... Mm. They rejected takeoff after V1. After V1, which was the big, mm, why? Why? Maybe don't. Maybe don't. It is worth noting that the fleet of Kalita Air had experienced a series of engine problems. They were the ones in October of 2004 that lost an engine and it fell in Lake Michigan. Yes, it did. Only to be found by Expedition Unknown, as we talked about in episode 31. They had 12 engine incidents on takeoff since 2006, four of which were in this aircraft, and one of those was with this captain in Incheon, where he experienced a, quote, loud bang, flash of light, aircraft yawed to the right, end quote. Just not a good record, by the way. This aircraft alone had a reported 27 engine-related incidents since January 2004. Which is just terrible. 
Really terrible. This yeah. is why they eventually did retire the 747-200, because they realized that they were flying like 40-year-old airplanes, and they were like, mm, the maybe, these need to, yeah. maybe these need to actually be retired. But this particular aircraft had a higher engine-related incident reporting than the rest of the fleet. In fact, Engine 3 was replaced one month prior for an engine fire warning. Cool. That's always a nice thing. I love that. Yeah. Engine 4 had also been replaced recently, though it did not detail as to why. Investigators interviewed the flight crew to determine why they decided to reject takeoff after V1, fully well knowing the capacity of the aircraft to continue despite the loss of one engine. Mm -hmm. There were several factors in this decision, and we're going to go through them now. The takeoff performance calculations were done assuming the runway was wet. Upon lining up, the runway looked dry, giving them some wiggle room and distance since it wouldn't take as much runway to take off. Their original takeoff margin, the distance they had to spare, which was calculated with a wet runway, was 300 meters. But they entered the runway at B1 intersection, 300 meters down the runway. So that margin they had? No margin. No No margin. margin. Engine 3 stalled mid-runway length, and the runway there changed in slope from 0.62% to 0.93%, which may have given the crew the impression of the aircraft actually slowing down. And last but most pertinent in my mind, the engine stall caused a loud bang, probably as loud, if not louder, as the one the pilot experienced in Incheon with this very same aircraft a few years back. It was a genuine engine failure then. The sound of the bang could have given the pilot the impression it was caused by something worse than what happened at Incheon, since it was louder. Fair enough. The investigator said that this crash was not due to an engine failure, but rather a history of engine incidents, which therefore influenced the reaction of the crew. Okay, so here's... <laughs> here, yes. Okay, playing Monday Night Quarterback. Mm-hmm. Because I realize if, like, this has happened before, mm-hmm. and this is what happened, when? you would assume this is what's happening. But my problem is this aircraft has four engines. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You- it is more than capable of flying without an engine. Yeah. And you are able to take off, circle, and come back and land. You are correct. So I don't understand the thought process behind, and I i mean, we probably won't know because, I mean, the, they did what they did, right? Yeah. But they could have saved a whole aircraft by just taking off Yep. and, you know, saying, hey, there was something going on right before takeoff. Yep. We're going to circle around and come back and figure out what's going on. And circle around, land, and then not have that problem. Yep. You're correct. I don't know. It seems to me like that was a very, very spur-of-the-moment decision. Yes. But But the wrong spur-of-the-moment decision. I also do back it up because the previous engine failure was not as loud and was truly an engine failure. And maybe he thought it would have influenced other engines? I don't know. One thing I did forget to write in my notes, but I did note while reading the report, the CPR did pick up the sounds of the number three engine revving back up. Mm. So it was in the midst of recovering because it is rated to do so. Yep. So they actually would have been just fine. Yeah. Because I don't know if you recall, but when I said it is certified to handle several birds at once, those several birds at once are of a one kilogram size. Mm-hmm. This bird at most would have been like 200 grams. Right. Well, they th- don't they throw like frozen turkeys and stuff. Basically, or at least they used to. Now they kind of use like substitute things. But yeah, yes. Like if they can handle an entire turkey. Yeah, right. That's the idea. They should be able to handle a tiny bird. Right. And it and it did. Yes, it did. And that's the whole thing. So the whole not saying that they know they'd hit a bird. Right. Because they wouldn't. And it di- it sounded worse than a bird. Is more of the point that the investigators made. And I still understand that, and that's giving them a lot of benefit of the doubt, considering it is still, no matter, regulation, that after V1, as long as you still have thrust in three engines, yep, you're going. Yeah. It doesn't matter. The, the, all this tells me is that the company culture did not promote that. No, it doesn't sound like it. And I think one of the recommendations specifically yes. gears towards that. Yes. Which is it kind does. of important considering they had so many issues with engine problems. Uh-huh. Correct. On this aircraft in particular. Yep. Yeah. Like, that. that's not great. This was kind of the nail in the coffin for the 747-200 for them. They still flew them for a little bit longer, but not much because it was not a good airplane for them anymore. Okay. So that explains the decision to reject takeoff despite it being a terrible idea. Is there anything the crew could have done to mitigate the damage of the overrun? 
Last episode, we discussed three different breaking methods. Remember what they are? No, I don't. The okay. normal three. Oh, where they break on the plane? So, yes. wheel brakes. The pilot insists. Oh, I thought you meant like where the plane breaks. Like, no, no, three no, different no. braking methods. No, the no. brake. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, let's start with the wheel brakes since you brought that up. The pilot insisted that he used maximum braking power during the rejected takeoff, but based on the braking performance chart, using maximum brakes to stop from a speed of 152 knots would have put them in the danger zone for brake energy, likely resulting in deflated tires as well as wheel fires. The wreckage showed that 14 of the 16 tires were intact after the aircraft stopped. Though the investigators did not outright say it, it sounds unlikely that maximum braking power was used. So what about, uh, let's go with thrust reversers. They did not use the thrust reversers. Well, maybe they just didn't think about that. Right. But, but let's so, just go and like not do anything to stop the airplane. Right. So this is where the, the report contradicted itself because in the story, it said that thrust reversers were activated. But my guess is they may have pulled the throttles to idle, attempted to activate thrust reversers, but it was already too late. No. Yeah. They specifically... So one question you might have, if they have an engine failure, should they have used the thrust reversers? Yes. If they suspected an engine failure in one engine, which makes sense because it revved down, you could still use two thrust reversers that are symmetrical. So in this case, they should have used thrust reversers on engines one and four. Right. This is a problem on the A380 because they only have thrust reversers on... Two and three. Two and three. Yeah. And that's it. Kalita Air's procedure for rejected takeoff is to use the thrust reverser, so that one was not a procedure issue. And what is the last braking system? Spoilers! Spoilers, or speed brakes. As we discussed last episode, these are surfaces that pop up on the top surface of the wings that act both as producers of drag, as well as the same way spoilers work on a car, using their shape to redirect air to push down, giving more weight on the tires to increase friction and stopping capability. The speed brake lever was found in the retracted position, and the speed brakes themselves were stowed, but that does not mean that they were not used. Boeing performed a braking performance analysis to try to determine what the FDR would have looked like both if the speed brakes had been used or hadn't been used. The accident FDR did not perfectly match either, but was closer to the analysis of when they would be used, indicating a higher likelihood of being used rather than not. But due to limited information, the position of the spoilers are inconclusive. They couldn't find out. Sounds like they probably used them. More than likely. Overall, the braking performance analysis found that a rejected takeoff at 152 knots would be possible on a 9,800-foot runway if it were dry, regardless of spoiler or thrust reverser use. But it was also determined that it would not be possible to complete a rejected takeoff without an overrun on a wet runway, regardless of braking systems used. And records show that the runway was wet. Mm. Though I'm still not entirely sure. I mean, it may have been a little wet, but it seems like it was mostly dry. I don't know. I don't know about this one. Okay. So that's what I got. Yep. I've got more for the second half, obviously, and some other things we'll talk about in relation to this. So After this short break. We'll take a break. Let's take a break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, we're back. There's no findings, by oh. the way. Okay. I thought there were. There are, and they're not worth it. Okay. They so are. They there are, are. There are findings. three of them. There are three of them, and they are. This the aircraft was fine. was fine. The crew was fine, and the runway was fine. Oh, yeah. I guess. We Pretty sure that's. We really need to go over those. Nope. Which I think is interesting that they say that. Well, yes. So the recommendations. One of them. We will get there. Is the runway. I'll leave it alone. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. But we're going to talk about it. It's also in the probable cause. Yes, it is. Which is not probable. It is cause and contributing factors. The accident was caused by the decision to reject the takeoff 12 knots after passing V1 speed. The following factors contributed to the accident. Engine number three experienced a bird strike, calling it to stall. This phenomenon was accompanied by a loud bang noticed by the crew. 
The aircraft line up at the B-1 intersection, although the takeoff parameters were computed with the full length of the runway. The situational awareness of the crew. That was just a point. That's it. Less than maximum use of deceleration devices. Although the RISA, or runway and safety area, conforms to the minimum ICAO requirement, it does not conform to the ICAO recommendation for length. Agreed. And again, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But didn't they veer to the right, though? They did. Yes. And it's pretty obvious in one of the pictures, actually. Here, let me pull that back up. Like, that's great that they had it, but if they don't let it go straight off the runway, would it have made any difference? Per this picture, yes. Oh, why is that so small? Hold on. That doesn't even look like an end safety area. I know. Again. This has I, changed. It's ICAO compliant. I will show you. Barely. The, I will show you the picture of the map here in a few because I do have it up as I do. And I will show you where it is now. How are you expected to stop with that short amount of distance off the end of the runway? Oh, by the way, looking at the stuff for the report. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was a four meter dip. And then immediately past that, down to the railway tracks, was another 20 meters. Right, which they did not go down. <laughs> Obviously. But, um, it would have been worse. That could have been bad. Yeah. So, all right. Recommendations. Was that the end of the... Yeah. That was it. Wow. That was it. Okay. That was it. To Kalita. Hold on. Okay. Just to specify, the runway and safety area of runway 20 complies with the requirements of ICAO Annex 14. Minimum length of 90 meters. Minimum width of 90 meters. It was 100 meters wide and 90 meters long. So like it was just enough. in yeah. compliance. However, the ICAO Annex 14 recommends to extend the length of the RISA to a distance of at least 240 meters. This recommendation, not mandatory, is not met for runway 20. The runway is bordered by a road located four meters lower than the runway. Mm -hmm. The railroad tracks of the line Brussels-Leuven is 50 meters further back, 20 meters lower than the ring road level. So mm -hmm. this is what it looked like then, is what is in blue. Okay. So, in regards to Kalita's training program, quote, we recommend to modify the training program, the flight crew, initial and recurrent, and related documentation to highlight the risks involved in rejecting takeoff around V1, as well as the importance of respecting procedures. So, in other words, don't do it reject anyway. takeoff after V1. Right. And just understand don't. that that's a standard operating procedure and you should follow it. Right. So, <laughs> they say the training program of Kalita was amended and an in house DVD training video was developed that demonstrates proper and improper reject procedures that is modeled after the runway to zero in Brussels. The content of the DVD was reviewed by both Boeing and the FAA. This revised training program is currently in place. So I, that changed. Whenever they say that there's like a video training program, I always think oh of my like God. 90s yes, training that's videos. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I'm sure. So the runway and safety area. Quote, we recommend to extend the runway and safety area of runway 20, which is now runway 19, by the way. It has changed because magnetic headings change. And also uh -huh. their 25 right, 25 left should not be 25 right and 25 left because they point almost five degrees in different directions. Oh. Toward each other. Okay. I'll show you on a map. Anyways. To the length recommended by the ICAO either through physical extension or by the use of the EMAS system, discussed in Chapter 1.10, which they did not do, or by any other suitable means, and evaluate the need to apply this recommendation to other runways and Belgian airports. It has changed. Here is the map. So, it's kind of hard to tell, but this is the end that they slid off of. You can see right here where the fence used to be. Yeah. This is like the road. There's like an outline right there. Where it used to be, and now where it is all the way down there which is so much better yes it's literally more than twice the distance further away remind me when did this happen 2008 ah. so yeah it's much further now and have we landed on that runway or taken off on that runway no we usually land right here and take off right here gotcha every time those two there. are not parallel yeah see they're pointing at each other this is two five right this is two five left and they are like pointed almost five ten degrees at each other i don't know a whole lot but this doesn't work at most airports. It's not how it works. Normally, gotcha. this would be like, maybe this would be 2.5, and this would be like 2.6, 2.7. Okay. I am also noticing that there is not EMAS implemented. No, nope. Nowhere. They don't do that. They put really big runway N 
safety areas now at all of the runways. I mean, look at how big this runway end safety area is. Not only does the runway technically have all this distance at Uh the end of it, it also has this distance to play with. So that is enormous. So, to the bird control unit. As we recommend to the bird control unit of Brussels, they should reinforce, one, the leader of the BCU, bird control unit, should be dedicated to the task Dedicated to controlling birds. I don't know. <laughs> Were what they else. not? Right. I don't know what else. They, they really left and that. the bird came back. Right. It's not like you can like un- well, like for sure that- say that the bird's not going to come back. Right. But that that was also like during their interview. Right. So the part of what they so they they clarify a little bit. The function is currently held part time by an airport inspector. Oh, so they should be a full time bird person. Right. right. Which we've discussed kind of in brief, but here that in, was a team of six people. Right. Here in Denver, we have quite a large team of people that do this because we have a very large airport to cover. And they square miles. And they are dedicated biologists. That is their degree. That is what they do for a living. They do this full time. They control wildlife on they the control airport. birds. And other wildlife. Deer, elk, whatever decides to wander through the fence. Because that happens. Two. Training should be improved to involve all topics related to wildlife in an airport environment. It is currently limited to get a hunting license. You have to have a hunting license. You have to have a hunting license <laughs> to be one of these bird control unit personnel. That's it. <sighs> Which, yes, feels Maybe like... Maybe you should be an ornithologist? Right. Or a biologist. Or anything. like Something that's not just a, a hunter? Right. I feel like, yeah. You be nice. In regards to communication, we recommend that the aeronautical information publication issued by Belgium Control did not formally require flight crew to notify the tower when the use of full length of runway 20 was required. For runway 25 right, however, a dedicated sentence to the purpose was included. Belgium Control revised the AIP to include the same requirement for runway 20. So what they're saying here is basically for runway 25 right, should the entire length of the runway be needed by the flight, it is in the chart and it says that you must inform the tower that the full length is required. In this case, per their weight and everything related to wet runway and everything, they required the full length of runway 20 for takeoff. They had the full length, so that didn't really matter, but they didn't have a requirement to notify the tower. Now, this is kind of a moot point, and a lot of airports don't do this, because it really is up to the crew to make that determination. And should they be given instructions to do a takeoff from a different taxiway, then it's their responsibility, usually, in any case, at any airport, any pilot, to say, I need the full length, and they will give it to you. So, that's it. I I have a point to make. Yes? They have a parking lot for plane spotters. They have two. Called Spotters Platform. Yes, there are two of them. Why have we not done this? We will do this sometime. There are two of them, and they're both right here. There's one right there. Which has a little, like, runway and playground and all that. Cute! And then there's another one over here, which is an elevated platform. Well, and then there's the parking over there. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a parking place right there. You can also park down here, but, or walk. So, yeah. Well, hot day. Okay. That was Kalita. I don't remember the flight number. I don't either. It is. 207? 207. In the interest of prolonging this episode, we're going to read some stuffy stuffs. Do you, here, you want to read the first one? We got four. Spock! That's Spock. (laughs) So there I was, listening to your excellent analysis of the Virgin Galactic in-flight rapid, unscheduled disassembly (laughs) over the Mojave, and realizing that I had recognized some of the causal factors. Have y'all ever come across a term in aviation parlance called tribal knowledge? Yep. Sure have. We've had a lot of discussions about this actually at my work. (laughs) Tribal knowledge is perhaps a rather appropriative phrase, but it truly fits the category of information that caused the Virgin Galactic crash. You're correct. Basically, the commander knew the dangers of unlocking the feather system in flight below 1.4 Mach, but only because he had known about it previously. This dangerous single point of catastrophic failure was not well socialized among the flight crews, as evidenced by the co-pilot's incorrectly timed unlocking of the feather below 0.8 Mach or so. 
Thus, the knowledge of the risks involved at transonic flight falls into the category of tribal knowledge. To flesh out this term a little more, tribal knowledge is information that might be critical to safe operation, but is either not promulgated or tested regularly among the cadre of users. Generally, it's sort of a privileged piece of information preserved as a gotcha by the gatekeepers of information. Oh, you've heard and understood how unlocking the feather before you hit Mach 1.4 could potentially cause uncommanded movement? Great, you must have learned the other stuff that's actually in the manuals as well. In this way, tribal knowledge can even become a convenient litmus test for determining a pilot's suitability for advancement, rather than relying on a true evaluation of their studied knowledge and capability, which is much harder to do. I am generally in favor of harshly excising this practice of tribal knowledge. Yes. Much like in indigenous tribes of North America, from whence the name comes, tribal knowledge is rarely written down. It survives only in the minds and spoken words between elders, or maybe just senior captains at an airline, and can be lost or forgotten over time. Reliance on tribal knowledge can make things easy in the short term to determine who to advance or who to hold back, but in the end it always seems to cause problems. Question. Oh, he didn't know about the tendency of the worn brake wear indicators to falsely show sufficient thickness when the parking brake isn't set? Answer. I guess not, huh? Well, isn't that common knowledge? Well, only people who know that usually make captain. Is it in the manuals? Well, no. Then how do you expect your captains to know this is a potential problem? Well, it usually all comes up in their training. So then how did he make captain? I don't know. I guess he just never heard of it or wasn't asked during the evaluation. Is everyone asked this during the upgrading evaluations? I guess most people are. Can you see how not training people on this could be a problem? But it's better than asking 10 different questions about the operation of hydraulic systems during an evaluation. So we like to keep that in our back pocket. It's safety critical information. It doesn't belong in your back pocket. It belongs in your manuals and publications. Correct. But it takes months or years to update our training manuals. Don't so care. are you updating them? No, we want to keep this point as an evaluation question. So you are okay with having more accidents as a result of unrecognized breakware. Exactly. You ask a lot of hard questions. <laughs> Well, the answer is that reliance on tribal knowledge inevitably involves an appropriate gatekeeping of potentially critical information. In a healthy training program, new information is quickly distributed to users at all levels and discussed frequently as it is added to the existing training manuals and publications. This promotes a positive safety culture. Maybe I'm reading into this a little too much, but having seen this sort of culture in action myself, I feel it's important to point out. So for all you CFIs and chief pilots, teachers and principals, chefs and dishwashers, medical and law students, nurses and Starfleet officers, please learn to identify and promulgate information that becomes tribal knowledge. Do the work and evaluate your competitors the old-fashioned way. Soapbox rant over. As always, love the show. Keep your airspeed up. Thanks. Thanks, Spock. And a lot of this is a very good point. And in being in the industry, I can tell you that there's a lot of this is very well taken care of now at the really high level. So we're talking about all of the pilots and all the information related to pilots and all the, re the information generally related to ground crews and the ramps. And that's important stuff. But I find that gate staff and cabin crews tend to still have a lot of tribal knowledge aspects. And I'm trying to fix this within my own staff here at the airport. So while this doesn't necessarily affect the safety of the aircraft as much. It is still a point where if I fix this tribal knowledge, that just means that we're going to have a consistent operation. It's going to be a better experience for the customers, and it is still going to be a safer operation no matter. So this is something that I am actively working on, and it's constantly on my mind. Great. Cool. Thanks, thanks Spock, for yeah. the small lecture. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> the next one's from Alan. Alan! This is our listener, Alan, not our patron, Alan. Ah. As far as I'm aware, I could have. I know that one of them spells their name differently than the other one. Or this is a completely different Alan. Who knows? Alan. Alan. Anyway, I was just listening to the episode where we discover Nick's passion for looking at maps. What episode was that? <laughs> I don't know. He did not put an episode, so I have no idea. Okay. If you don't listen to the post episodes, you probably don't know how much I really am obsessed with that. Here I was for years, thinking I was the only weirdo doing just the same. I have been on Google Earth and Maps for years, looking at airports and admiring their intricate designs in different sizes. Mm -hmm. I have become quite an expert at identifying airports thanks to this, and I have loved every minute. It's been turned into a passion of mine. Since we are Agreed. confessing, I also watch full flight videos at work all the time. I find it incredibly relaxing and helps the day go by faster. Bottom line, you aren't alone. 
Cheers. No, you're both Thanks. weirdos. <laughs> and that's okay. We'll be weirdos together. I quite enjoy it. <laughs> it really is. It's fun. And it is amazing how many ways you can design an airport and how many ways you can design an airport wrong. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. The next one comes from James. James. I don't think we've had anything from a James. I don't think so. Nope. I think that's new. This might be new. Thanks, uh, James. So he starts with, I, like many others, I should imagine, just watched the MH370 documentary that came out on Netflix today, March 8th. In one of the episodes, they talk about how the avionics bay in the 777 isn't locked. Do you know if this is still the case? Seems like a bit of an oversight, if so. Thank you for your time and keep up the great work. It's kind of a complicated question, probably left more to maintenance, but there's not really much of a reason to lock it when... They don't lock most things on aircraft, because why would you? Most people don't know how to do... They don't know how to start the aircraft. Things with Also, where the hell is it? Like, how do you access it? Right. Usually in the nose. And that's the whole thing, is most people don't know how to do that. So, depending on the aircraft, it can be done through the forward cargo hold, because usually it's in the nose. Obviously, being close to the cockpit is ideal for Mm -hmm. avionics. It can also be accessed through the nose landing gear, usually. It can also sometimes be accessed from the flight deck. There's sometimes a large door. Trap door. Trap door, basically, in which you can just access this. Okay. So it's a whole thing. I mean, yeah, it's totally possible. But again, I mean, it, it doesn't make much sense to lock things anyways, because unless you have a coded lock which you have to disseminate that information and then it can be breached. And there's a whole list of reasons why that doesn't make a lot of sense. But ultimately, this just doesn't happen. Like, not something we're really concerned about. Most people aren't trying to seek out really expensive and difficult to get avionics. Plus, good luck taking them out. They require a lot of tools. Well, and honestly, if you don't know how to work it and no one else knows what it is, why would you try to get it out of the airplane anyway? It's not like taking a radio out of a car. Right. (laughs) Actually, it's much more difficult than that. Yes. Also, I have started watching that documentary. We want to watch the rest of it together, so we have not watched it. Yes. Yeah. On the list. So. All right. Last one from Mandy. I'm pretty sure she's one of our patrons still. If you're not, that's okay, too. I, don't, I, just, <laughs> I just full don't remember. And she says, so in the February trivia question answers, Miranda said she's a triplet, which I am. Which is very cool. Not that cool. Just saying. (laughs) I know some families don't distinguish sets of triplets by oldest, youngest, etc. We do, by the way. Mm -hmm. But is Miranda the oldest of the triplets? She gives off older sister energy coming from an older sister. Sorry if you mentioned this in in Patreon content. I've been terrible at listening to the Patreon content OTL. On the list. So... We did talk about this in a post episode, like recently, because I thought it was hilarious that you were asking. (laughs) I'm actually the youngest of the three of us. Do we want to tell the whole story of your catastrophic? (laughs) So Miranda's a drama queen. (laughs) So basically what happened, my brothers were, I was up high, my brothers were down low, and my mom was put on bed rest and she did not go on bed rest. So they forced her on bed rest. And so she was at the hospital just chilling. Like she was like, they made me do some swimming and stuff so I could like move around, but I couldn't put any like weight on my feet uh, because it was like getting pretty like unhealthy. For because her. you are incubating mm-hmm. three parasites. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> three, three children. Yes. And she just got an amnio, which by the way is a giant needle they stick into the middle of your stomach. Yep. And just to see, you know, what's going on. And they flushed her with some magnesium to slow her system down. And they did another amnio after that. And I was like, help. Help. (laughs) I need to come out now. I am drama. (laughs) (laughs) I need help. Mind you, their due date was in October. Yeah, our due date was October 12th. My birthday is August 2nd. So you can figure out what happened next. They were like, guess what? We're taking them out now. Today. Like, she remembers watching something about the Georgia 1996 Olympics being bombed, like, on oh. the TV when they told her that mm-hmm. I we were coming out. So they rushed her in to get a C-section, and I came out last. Because you were on top. Yep. So. Drama queen. Connor was first. Connor's the oldest by two minutes. PJ's the next oldest by a minute, and I'm the youngest. But I act the oldest. That's fair. That's because I have responsibility (laughs) and they have not. I mean, they do now, but for a long time, they were not responsible humans. That is true. There you go. Connor looks appearance wise closest to Miranda. They both have blonde hair and blue eyes. 
I don't know where PJ got anything from. Your mom. My mom. Although his hair is still lighter and his eyes are hazel. Although that comes from my mom because my aunt on my mom's side had hazel eyes. Gotcha. So it was somewhere on her side. But she has dark brown hair and brown eyes. And none of us have dark brown hair and none of us have brown eyes. So there you go. We all have recessive genes. There's all the deep information. (laughs) Oh, and PJ, I I know we've talked about his transplant before, but he has a heart transplant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now that you're figuring out who's who. Yeah. PJ is the one that has the, he also has diabetes. Diabetes. He has diabetes. Because of his heart transplant and a bunch of stuff he did afterward that he wasn't supposed to, he gave himself diabetes. Don't do the thing. So he's the problem child. Yes. And I am the not problem child. Connor has also made some questionable decisions. Yeah, but it didn't affect his health. Well, it did affect his health, but not as bad as PJ. Yeah. And then Connor and his fiance are engaged and getting married in October. Yes. They're engaged. And outraged. And outraged. We have everyone straight now? Yeah. I think so. So there you go. I'm yep. not the oldest, but I act the oldest. And Fair I appreciate enough. you thinking I'm the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> but I told them that they died first, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for putting up with the questions. Thank you for the questions. Yes, Sorry thanks. it took so long. I didn't realize we had so many, and then I looked, and I was like... <gasps> oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Which, we needed it for this episode, because it was kind of short. So. And it was perfect. If you Three have, of them came within, like, two days of each other. Yes. Yes. If you have questions, feel free. There's a, a form, a listener question form on the website where you can submit questions, and it literally can be anything. Like, you can talk about how you like maps, like Nick, or you can ask me about my brothers, or ask Christy about her family, or ask about airplane stuff. Yeah. So there you go. There that you go. being said- You can also you, ask about Paige. Yes, because Paige is also part of our team. They're pretty cool. They were on the last episode- if, if you don't know who was on the last episode, that's Paige. That's our editor, our executive assistant. Yep. That is correct. They are the reason that this keeps chugging. <laughs> they really are. Otherwise, we'd be falling off the rails for this. They are at the foundation of this now. Yeah. They're the reason that you have merch. They're the reason that I have the will to keep going. <laughs> the will to live. The reason you have ducks yes. and episodes on time. So, there you go. Also, if you would like to, we have a listener story form if you want to tell us a story. We read those more? on air. If the, if you're new here, we read those on air. There's several episodes. I suggest you check them out. They're pretty cool. And some of them are funny and some of them are sad. They really are and, great. They don't get as much great. attention as our regular episodes, but I think they deserve a lot because they're really I think they're, it's because they're not main episodes and yeah, people and I haven't that. listened to them. So I understand why they don't get as I, much attention. Yeah, but, I get that. But they're really good. But they're they, good. <laughs> they are hilarious. They can also be heart-wrenching. I have cried more than once. Yes. Yeah. So, yep. there you go. There you go. Also, check out the merch. Again, new merch. And check out the Patreon, because you can get discounts for merch. Yeah. Also a thing. Also, I should have updated everything. For those of you who have merch discounts, if your merch discount is not working, can you please let me know? Thanks. Right. I have to fix it. And if I don't, remember then i can't fix it right so but everyone i i've just updated it so everyone should have access and their code should work so also if you forget your code just email us we'll tell you the code yep or ping us on social media yeah uh, it, uh, it's literally it takes me two seconds to tell you what the code is so all right everybody thanks okay. so much for listening we appreciate it we hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week keep your speed up Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.